We'll turn to Revelation chapter 21. We'll pray and, and jump into our study tonight. Father, we're so grateful for this book that we can study that uh, points to the completion, the consummation of your plan of redemption, and that you are a wise and just God who does all things uh, well, and everything you do is good and right. We are so thankful for that, and we're so thankful that you are omnipotent, that your plan does come to pass, and that no man can thwart it. So, Lord, thrill our hearts tonight as we uh, look into uh, the book of Revelation again, into what heaven will be like for eternity. Lord, we also want to pray for those in Nashville who are suffering such grief tonight. Uh, we bear that burden with them, and Lord, what a, a tragic thing to think through and to try to wrap our minds around. So we pray for the families who lost their children. We pray for the families who lost uh, uh, adult members. We pray for the families in the school whose children are alive but yet are having to somehow process the fear and all that's happened. And we pray for the family of the shooter, Lord certainly uh, parents or other loved ones that are devastated as well by what has happened. May you be the God of all comfort to give the kind of comfort that only you can give in a situation like this so that you are glorified and so that your people, even in the midst of great fear, give testimony to your goodness and your grace. In our Savior's name, amen. Chapter 21, tonight we'll wrap up our discussion of this chapter. We may even bleed in a little bit to chapter 22. And looking at the future eternal state in heaven, at least the description that God has given to us of that, and just to quickly run through the complicated outline that I've been following in Revelation 21 so far, we have found the following uh, facts, seven facts about the final and eternal heaven. We've noted that it will arrive after the millennium. According to the chronology of the book, second, it will be different in form than what the earth and heaven, especially the earth is now, a new heaven and new earth. It will have a capital city, the new Jerusalem. It will center on God's presence. Everything about heaven still comes back to focus on God and his presence there. It will be a state of perfect bliss beyond our imagination. It will have specific inhabitants, those who belong to the Lord, his people, those who reject the truth will uh, be in eternity in hell instead. And number seven, it will be unique in appearance. And I could even broaden that based on what we see tonight. Just unique in makeup, unique in appearance, uh, unique in everything about it. Now, we find under that last point several distinguishing marks then of the New Jerusalem that will make it unique. We only looked at one of them last time. Uh, I, I have figured out there are 12, and so we're going to do the other 11 tonight but uh, quickly. But uh, just to review that one, last time we discussed that John noticed first in his tour, his angelic tour of the new heaven and new earth, that that city is going to be marked by, first of all, brilliant glory. Brilliant glory. That will be the most distinguishing characteristic of the capital city of eternity. You see that in verse 11. 21 verse 11, having the glory of God. 
radiating out from the new Jerusalem will be the brilliance of the full manifestation of God's glory for eternity. And to describe even more fully the effect of God's glory radiating from the new Jerusalem, the rest of verse 11 says her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Our jasper today is not crystal clear, so more likely this was a clear white stone, which would compare to then what we understand to be a diamond. Heaven's capital city is pictured as a huge, flawless white stone or a huge, flawless diamond that is every aspect of it reflecting the brilliant, blazing glory of God throughout the new heaven and the new earth. So no doubt, it will be amazing beyond words to live in the presence of God's glory in heaven like that. Well, there are more distinguishing marks. John sees another unique distinguishing mark of this city. It will be marked by number two, high-gated walls. High-gated walls. Verse 11, these walls really are one of the most conspicuous features of the city besides just the glory of God radiating everywhere. Verse 12, It had a great and high wall with 12 gates, and the gates, and at the gates, 12 angels, and names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. This is very specific factual information that's confirming that the New Jerusalem, this capital city, heaven, will have an actual shape. The city's not unstructured, it's not uh, shapeless, it's not just an ill-defined place just floating around, it has specific dimensions. And notice, we will be able to enter and leave the city through its 12 gates. And these gates, according to the word that's used there, it's the Greek term uh, pylon, guess what we get from that word, pylon. The gates are actually, it's a word for towers, they're gated towers, A large gateway of which the actual opening is just a small part of the tower. And there's a large number of them, 12, confirming freedom of access to the city. And our text adds that 12 angels will be stationed at those gates. No doubt the 12 angels are there to serve God, to do whatever he wants, to do his beating, his bidding, to attend to his glory. But as well, I think they, they will be there for eternity just to serve uh, as watchmen. Not that there's anything that we need protecting from, but just to make the continual statement that uh, we are in the reality of eternal security. And notice that these gates will have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel on them. One name on each gate. That's interesting. By doing that, the names will serve as an eternal testimony to the distinct role in history of the nation of Israel. In other words, for all eternity, God's covenant relationship with Israel is going to be remembered along with everything that went with that, the promises made to the nation, the covenants, the fact that the Scripture was given to them, the fact that the Messiah came from them, a celebration for eternity of God's faithfulness to Israel to commemorate that. Then verse 13 points out that these gates will be arranged symmetrically. Verse 13, there were three gates on the east and three gates on the north and three on the south and three on the west. The four directions indicated in verse 13 show that in the new creation, directions uh, are known uh, just as they are in the old old, uh, creation. And this is not the first time this symmetrical arrangement is mentioned in Scripture. It's also found 
And maybe your mind's already going there. Uh, if you're really, really versed on the Old Testament, the 12 tribes camped that way around the tabernacle in a symmetrical way like that, three on each side. You see that in Numbers 2, and you see it in Ezekiel 48, even the prediction that they'll, they'll dwell that way in the millennial kingdom as well, around the millennial temple. So back to the massive wall of the city, it's going to be anchored also, verse 14. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So the wall's 12 foundations simply imply that the city will rest on the new earth. The city's not suspended in the air above the earth. It's going to come to rest on foundation. And these foundation stones commemorate something else. Just like the 12 gates are commemorating God's people in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant, the nation of Israel. These foundation stones are going to commemorate forever God's covenant relationship with the church. A different entity than Israel, you see. And the 12 apostles are called what in Ephesians 2.20? The foundation of the church. Listen to Ephesians 2.20. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The church is a unique entity in God's plan. It's under the new covenant. So put that together with what we saw a moment ago. At the top of each gate will be the name of one of the tribes of Israel. At the bottom of the walls will be the names of the 12 apostles. So the layout even pictures God's favor on all his redeemed people, both under the Old Covenant and those under the New Covenant, but this also affirms the biblical perspective that there is a difference between Israel and the church, which we maintain around here all the time through Scripture. They are each a subset of God's people, but at the same time, they are each a unique entity. It's not a biblical perspective to say that Israel and the church are the same. They're not. It is significant that John brings together the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles here and makes a distinction between them. And the words clearly show that God has an eschatological role for both peoples. The next distinguishing mark, that was the high-gated wall. So brilliant glory, high-gated walls. Number three, incredible size. Incredible size. Verse 15. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. By the way, that's reminiscent. If you go back to Ezekiel 40, you find the measuring of the temple there. It's very similar language. Revelation 11, even the book of Revelation, chapter 11, verse 1, the measuring of the tribulation temple. Here's what Revelation 1 says. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. That's the temple during the, revelation, during the tribulation period. So here in our passage, we find it happening again. All three instances of measuring make the same point. It's the point of, of ownership. God measuring, marking out what is his, what belongs to him. It's a picture of possession. This is God's capital city, and it's the capital city of his heaven. So the angel's purpose here is to measure the city and to give John information that he could not discern himself without uh, just even from the vision. The angel will measure it, giving the information, and here's what's revealed by the measurement, verse 16. The city is laid out as a square, and its length is as great as its width, 
and he measured the city with the rod, 1,500 miles, literally it's 12,000 stadia, you know, the conversion that is difficult to make, you know, into modern measurements that we would understand, so it's approximately 1,500 miles. Measure the city with a rod, 1,500 miles, its length and width and height are equal. 1,500 miles approximately by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. Glorious. See, hear the angels singing as we even talk about this. The length and width and height being equal, what shape is that? It's a cube. Interesting. The cube was the shape of something else in the Old Testament. The Holy of Holies. Solomon's temple. 1 Kings 6, verse 20. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits in length, 20 cubits in width, 20 cubits in height. The Holy of Holies, the inner chamber representing the the glory of God, the presence of God, where God's glory dwelled between the cherubim, the cube-shaped city will be exactly what is needed to still give that same testimony of the presence of God, and it will be exactly what's needed for the existence of the glorified saints. Now, here's an interesting observation about the size of that future city. If you just want to put it in perspective somewhere on the earth, If you take that city and superimpose it on the United States, it extends from Canada, our suburb, you know, to the north, all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico, and from approximately Colorado to the Atlantic Ocean. That's 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles, and it's 1,500 miles high. This is going to blow your mind. I found some actual photos of the city. Adam, that's your cue. Slides. Little known photos that exist of the actual city. Now, an artist's representation to give you an idea. John was on a high mountain. He saw this descending from heaven. A cube. Towered gates. 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles descending down toward the new earth. It's not an exact picture because the new earth doesn't have what? doesn't have oceans and seas. All right. We're going to have to find the artist and get him to correct this a little bit. But uh, I like his conclusion. The new Jerusalem is huge. Notice the gates there. We'll talk about the pearls in just a moment. But you get an idea of the radiating, the radiance of God's glory just every direction. So there, if you, if you put that cube on the United States, I was trying to capture it for you, what it approximately would be. And uh, looking at it three-dimensionally, something like that. I don't think cheddar cheese is the, the best representation of God's glory radiating everywhere. But uh, just to give you an idea the size we're talking about. Now, leave that slide up, but I intentionally put a blank one in there so you wouldn't keep looking at it until there's something else I want to show you. So, obviously, the new Jerusalem is going to have plenty of room for all the saints that have died and been glorified. Plenty of room for what Jesus was saying he was preparing in John 14, right? Dwelling places. Back to the measurement, verse 17. 
and he measured its wall, 72 yards. What's this? Well, then this would be the measurement of the thickness of the walls, 72 yards. And then to emphasize the city's dimensions are literal, John adds this parenthetical footnote. Look at verse 17. According to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. He's just saying that this expression means that an angel did the measuring, but he followed human standards in how he communicated it to John. So regardless of what you use, a yard is a yard, a foot is a foot, a mile is a mile, no matter whether it's human or angels measuring it. We come now to something else that will mark the new city, number four, amazing materials. So brilliant glory, high-gated walls, incredible size, amazing materials. I'm not going to review every one of these. Like I said, there's 12. I'll have to sing it if I did that, the 12 days of Christmas kind of melody. Amazing materials. Verse 18, here's the material that this massive city wall will be made out of. 18, the material of the wall was jasper. Now, that's the same white stone, diamond-like stone mentioned in verse 11, which means that the walls are translucent. God's glory is radiating through the walls. The whole city is aglow with the glory of God emitted like a, uh, in a, in a jasper-like, diamond-like radiance. And not only was the wall translucent, but also the city buildings themselves, everything in the city, verse 18, pure gold like clear glass. So both the, the walls around the city, the city itself, meaning just everything in it, the buildings of the future will be clear, translucent. And that's so the entire city will be able to radiate the glory of God. And that certainly surpasses any gold that we understand here. We don't have gold this pure. This is absolutely, perfectly pure, translucent gold. Someone might think that, wow, there's all this translucence. There's no privacy. (laughs) You're right. But our existence there will be totally different than it is now here on earth. And heaven will be nothing about our existence that demands privacy of any kind. Our passage goes on. John's attention and the vision is turned back to the foundation stones of the city wall. So we're back on that. What are they made out of? Verse 19 and 20. The foundation stones of the city wall were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony. I had to listen up, listen to that on the Google it. The fourth emerald, verse 20, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase. I looked that one up too. The 11th, jacinth. The 12th, amethyst. Now, it's of interest here that the 12 foundations are extending above the ground or else John wouldn't have seen them. They were visible from John's vantage points, the foundation. So John names 12 of the precious stones that will adorn the city walls. But as we examine these, we have to remember that the names of some of these stones have changed through the centuries, just like understanding what jasper is then and now. Nevertheless, we get the general idea. Something else interesting, eight of these 12 stones are mentioned in the Old Testament. Eight of these 12 were mounted on the high priest breastpiece, Exodus 28. 17 and 19 through 17 through 20 of Exodus 28. You can read that. Just a comment about the word adorn, though, for a moment. 
It doesn't mean that these stones were decorating the foundations, you know, that some really glorified craft person, you know, had stuck them all on everywhere to make them look pretty. No, it's meaning that the foundations consisted of these stones, one stone making up one foundation. So basically what we're talking about are layers of foundation, 12 layers stacked up, one made out of each stone so that they were visible. First one is Jasper. We've already discussed that. Still known as best as what we know as a diamond. But here's where I got more pictures for you, see. I was in a mood. Once I got started, I could stop, you know. Um, just pictures of the stones. So just to get an idea of the, of the beauty Sapphire, a brilliant blue stone, a foundation made out of all of that, something like that. Chalcedony, uh, it's an agate stone from the Chalcedine region, which is now modern Turkey. It's sky blue in color, sometimes a little bit of a bluish green hint, but it has colored stripes in the stone as well. Emerald, we're more familiar with that one, a bright green stone. Sardonyx, a red and white striped stone. Sardius, a common quartz stone found in various shades of red. Chrysolite, a transparent gold or yellow-hued stone. Beryl, a stone found in various colors, primarily either shades of green or yellow or blue. Topaz, a yellow, yellowish, sometimes yellow-green stone. Chrysopras, a golden green stone, green and goldish sort of mixed together. Jacinth, a blue or violet colored stone in John's day. What's interesting, the modern equivalent of that is what most people think is zircon. Zircon is more of a red or reddish brown stone. But in John's day, jacinth was more like that. And finally, amethyst, a purple stone. So again, just try to imagine all that. You can close that down, Adam. All these brightly colored stones making up the foundations, refracting all of them somehow, the shining brilliance of God's glory, turning them even into a ray. The glory of God turned into a ray of beautiful colors continuously for eternity. Obviously, this scene was one of breathtaking beauty to John. Incredible colors flashing from the new Jerusalem throughout the entire created universe. And the vision of these materials moves to the gates that caught John's eye. Verse 21, and the 12 gates, were, which were really towers, were 12 pearls. And each one of the gates was a giant pearl. Now, pearls in that day were highly prized, especially among the wealthier class. It was one of the most valuable items in the Roman world. Pearls were ranked highest among precious stones because their beauty derives entirely from nature, an oyster. Improvement of it is not really possible. But these pearls were like no pearl ever produced by an oyster, not what John saw. Each one of the gates somehow carved out of a single gigantic pearl 
1,400 miles high, potentially, or plus. Now, this is interesting. Take this for what you, you want, but I found this long quote by the commentator John Phillips. He believes there's a spiritual truth that we'll be reminded of continually living in this new city, going in and out through these gates carved out of giant pearls, spiritual truth. Listen to what he says. It it is interesting, thought-provoking. A pearl is a gem formed within the oyster, the only one formed by living flesh. The humble oyster receives an irritation or a wound, and around the offending article that has penetrated and hurt it, the oyster builds a pearl. The pearl, we might say, is the answer of the oyster to that which injured it. The glory land is God's answer in Christ to wicked men who crucified heaven's beloved and put him to open shame. How like God it is to make the gates of the new Jerusalem of pearl. The saints, as they come and go, will forever be reminded as they pass through the gates that access to God's home is only because of Calvary. Think of the size of those gates. What gigantic suffering is symbolized by those gates of pearl? Throughout the endless ages, we shall be reminded by those pearly gates of the immensity of the sufferings of Christ. Those pearls hung eternally at the access routes to glory will remind us forever of one who hung upon a tree and whose answer to those who injured him was to invite them to share his home. What a thought. I don't know, Scripture doesn't spell it out like that. But you wonder, why pearl for the gates? Well, back to verse 21. John's angelic tour continues here. The tour guide took him inside, and he enters the city, still under that fourth point of amazing materials. The apostle noted this, verse 21, and the street of the city was pure gold, but like transparent glass again. So this is like a summary statement of not just the the entry street, you know, the main thoroughfare or anything like that. It it really is the street system in the city that will run throughout the city. The the street will be continuous in the sense that even when it changes directions or joins with avenues coming from other gate towers, it ultimately is one street system and not many. And this street system will be made of the highest quality pure gold which, like everything else in this heavenly city, will be transparent. Transparent glass. We don't have anything equal to this kind of gold now. But keep in mind that everything in the New Jerusalem will be transparent to let the light of God's glory just keep radiating in an unrestricted manner. Mark number five reminds us of what we're going to be doing. Number five, this whole unique city is going to be marked by, number five, ongoing worship, ongoing, never-ending worship. Once inside, this is the first thing John noticed, verse 22, I saw no temple in it. No special temple or sanctuary is going to be required because in the new heaven, the, the new Jerusalem, in a sense, the whole city will be a temple. Now, granted, the Old Testament prophets they talk about this, they foresaw a restored temple. But that version that they prophesied about belongs to the millennial kingdom. That's one of the purposes of the millennial kingdom. 
It doesn't belong to the New Jerusalem. There's no temple in the New Jerusalem. Now, up to this point in Revelation, we've come across a temple several times. In the process of Revelation, before the second coming of the Lord and all that, it's the temple, the heavenly temple. Revelation mentions it from time to time. Revelation 7.15, there were the ones clothed in white who were martyred during the tribulation. They were seen in Revelation 7 before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple there. That's before the second coming. Revelation 11.19, at the sounding of the seventh trumpet, we read this, and the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. Revelation 14, verse 15, another angel came out of the temple. Verse 17, another angel came out of the temple. Chapter 15, related to the bold judgments, verse 6, and the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple. One more, Revelation 16, verse 1, I heard a loud voice from the temples speaking to the seven angels, go, pour out your wrath. Verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air and a loud voice came out of the temple saying it's done. That's in heaven before the second coming of the Lord, before the millennial kingdom. We're in the eternal state now. There's no temple, not in the new Jerusalem. Why? Verse 22 tells you, for the Lord, the God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. That conjunction four just introduces an explanation of the fact that the temple is going to be missing in the, in the eternal state. God himself is going to be dwelling amongst his people in direct, unmediated communion with us. He himself is the eternal holy of holies. And he's immediately available to the entire city and the universe. As the blazing glory, it says, of both the Father and the Son just fills the new heaven and the new earth. That's why there will be no need for anyone to go to a particular place. They won't be figuring out, man, we're out of space for children's ministry. We're going to have to build again. They won't do that there. There'll be no need for anyone to go to any particular place to worship God. No need to go to a temple or cathedral or chapel. Worship is going to be our continual existence since we are constantly in the presence of God's glory. There'll never be a moment when we're not in perfect communion with the Father and with the Lamb. Six mark, number six, supernatural light. So shifting gears slightly, the author turned to specifically focus on how the, how the, the light in the city works. God's presence in the city has some implications for the lighting system. So John knows this, verse 23. And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God, there it is again, has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. Now we understand in our present earthly existence, we're totally dependent on the sun, we're dependent on the moon, we're dependent on the sun. For the cycles of light and darkness, we're dependent on the moon for the the change in the tides and the oceans and the seas. But in the new heaven and the new earth, they will be unnecessary. No sun, no moon are needed. As we saw back in verse 1, there's no seas or oceans, so there's no tides. Don't need the moon for that. Won't need the moon or sun to provide light. The glory of God's radiating everywhere throughout the universe, providing needed light in abundance. And the comparison is, yes, to the Old Testament Shekinah glory of God. 
that provided the illumination in the Holy of Holies. God's presence is going to do that same thing for the whole city that's going to descend from heaven. If you think about that, what would the sun and moon even add to this? Nothing. And God's continuous glory will also mean that there's no changing from day and night. In the New Jerusalem, no such alternations between light and darkness will exist for eternity. It'll be a condition of constant brightness and brilliance. Notice how the text adds that its lamp will be the lamb. The lamb, the sun, is the radiance of the Father's glory anyway. Hebrews 1 verse 3. He, the sun, is the radiance of his glory and they're, they're equal. So the, the lamb is the lamp and the light as well as the father is the lamp. So we really see here in Revelation once again that the father and the, and the son share authority here. Let me remind you what we saw a glimpse of back in Revelation 3 verse 21. Shared authority. Revelation 3 21. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Whose throne is it, the father's or the son's? Yes. Here's another great quote concerning the brilliant light of the future new Jerusalem by J.A. Seiss. Listen. That shining is the uncreated light of him who is light, dispensed by and through the lamb as the everlasting lamp, to the home and hearts and understandings of his glorified saints. And then he goes in, there's been some little taste of this along the way. When Paul was on his way to Damascus, a light brighter than the sun at noon shone round about him, irradiating his whole being with new sights and understanding. When Moses came down from the mount of his communion with God, his face was so luminous that his brethren could not endure to look upon it. On the Mount of Transfiguration, that same light streamed forth from all the body and raiment of the blessed Jesus. No wonder Isaiah says, the moon will be ashamed and the sun confounded. Ashamed because of the outbeaming glory which will appear in the new Jerusalem, leaving no more need of them to shine in it. The glory of God lights it and the Lamb is the light thereof. Well, the vision goes on to give the impact of this illumination, this supernatural light, the illumination on what is called the nations. And this is going to be very interesting, what it says. Verse 24, the nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. So the obvious question begged is, who are these nations and these kings? He, the text separates them out. I'm going to give you the best view. These nations are composed, and you can follow this and you can research it yourself, but I'll tell you what I believe it means. These nations are composed by of saved people who survived the millennial kingdom without dying. There will be people born and live in the millennial kingdom for in a thousand years, and will come to Christ. And when that ends, the millennial kingdom ends, and the great white throne judgment occurs, and the eternal state begins, 
they're ushered into the eternal state. They didn't die. They didn't join Satan's rebellion either. In a way that the text doesn't tell us, they go through some sort of transformation that will suit them for life in the eternal state. Some commentators have suggested that they're going to be like Adam and Eve then in the Garden of Eden prior to the fall. Living, breathing, without sin. That's why many times we say that an aspect of heaven is going to be paradise restored. The restoration of life in the garden forever. But to continue our evaluation of these people that are mentioned here, they're going to be different in one sense from the other saints in heaven. There will be those at the end of the millennium who won't die but are ushered into the eternal state. So these are unresurrected human beings who will inhabit the new earth. And this distinguishes them somewhat from everyone who died as the way to enter heaven. These will also be the ones over whom God's resurrected saints will reign. Revelation 22, verse 5, reigning forever and ever. So to summarize that, there are going to be peoples, nations on earth. There's not just a city. There's a new earth. It doesn't have oceans, but there's a new earth. There will be peoples and nations on earth who continue as Adam and Eve did before the fall. We're not told in Scripture what the conditions will be outside the New Jerusalem. Everything we're, have, we're talking about here is about the city itself, the New Jerusalem. But there's a new earth. It's sitting on a new earth. We don't know the conditions across the new earth except that they're perfect. One can only assume that in the absence of the curse that's plagued our present earth, there's no curse upon the earth. Conditions there are going to be vastly different, vastly superior to what we understand now. But the bottom line is that there is the rest of the new earth out there outside the city. And there will be nations and peoples living outside the city itself on the remainder of the new earth. And these people and their leaders called kings here will move about on the new earth. Just as people within the city are going to move about. People in the city will be able to move out of the city through the gates. People outside the city will be able to move in. We're told that those people living out of the new earth will bring their glory into the city, it says. And that verb bring is written in a present tense, which is a way to mark activity as a habit constantly going on. But the glory of their dignity as transformed people, the point here is the glory of being transformed people living on the earth like the garden is going to pale in comparison to the light already in the city. So they'll come into the city by the light of the glory of God and they'll need no other light just like everyone else. That ends up making the kings, the leaders, everyone in the new Jerusalem and the new earth totally equal. The end result is that all people which is what the nations ultimately means. It's actually the word ethnos, which is, uh, means people and, and frequently used to mean Gentiles. The end result is that all people, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, both of Jews and Gentiles, will end up being united as God's people. Every believer fully equal in the eternal state, even though some live within the city and some without. 
And it's the glory of God that provides the light for all, the entire universe. There will ultimately be no social or class structure in the eternal state. So the bottom line is that this reference to the nations and the kings of the earth is not a restatement of the millennial kingdom. Some have tried to say, well, I can't figure this out, so it must be talking about the millennial kingdom again. No, that interpretation fails to do justice to the chronology of Revelation that's affirmed by all the connecting terms, especially that repeated use of and then, and then. That's the sixth mark, supernatural light. Here's number seven, and this bleeds into what I've... From what I just said, number seven is never-ending safe movement. Safe movement that never ends. Verse 25, in the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. So there's the non-closing of the gates. Call attention to the fact that there's going to be continued access to the city for all the nations and their leaders, and it informs us that those within the city can freely move out of the city. So an implication of this is the perfect security of the city as well as the perfect safety and security of the rest of the new earth. That's not the way it was in ancient times, right? The walls around the city were important and the gates were closed at nightfall. Why? Well, to keep out intruders and to keep out uh, criminals and wild animals, marauders and so forth. Any dangerous individuals, keep them from entering the city under the cover of darkness, but in eternity, there's no night. Always day. No need to close the gates for security. No, no exploiters. Nobody anywhere that can't be trusted. No curfews. No concern about security existing anywhere in the new universe. Complete security, complete rest, complete safety freedom of movement, gates that never need to be closed, and they won't. And since there'll be no night, the free, safe movement we're discussing here is something that will be possible around the clock, so to speak. There won't be clocks as we know them, but around the clock, so to speak, due to always having light, we'll always be living in continual daytime. I mean, daylight savings time is nothing that we have here to try to make the days feel longer. I mean, you could say that existence in the eternal state will be the ultimate form of daylight savings time. And throughout this never-ending daytime, the city's gates will always be open. Verse 26, we find the thought repeated then about the kings of the earth with one additional thought. And they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. Added to the glory is this term honor. The term refers to some sort of regular tribute that the leaders of organized nations bring in as an act of worship. We're not given any details about this honor, this tribute, only that it will happen. But just imagine a world, an earth, without, without the curse on it. I mean, the choices of treasures and tributes are unlimited. I mean, that all eternity will be a time of uninhibited prosperity. So all this adds together to confirm that people will freely move about into the city, within the city, going out of the city, never-ending safe movement. Number eight, 
complete holiness, complete holiness, all in the eternal state will be perfectly holy, including those living outside the city, no difference there, verse 27, and nothing unclean and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it because they don't exist on the new earth, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's all that's there. The only ones existing anywhere in the eternal state will be those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That was mentioned back to the letter in chapter 3 to Sardis at the end there about the overcomer. Revelation 3 verse 5, he who overcomes will be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life. Revelation 13 8, true believers' names have been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life by the lamb who was slain. It doesn't matter whether someone lived and died thousands of years ago, centuries ago, our time, earlier in our time, this century, after us in the tribulation, in the millennium, it doesn't matter what matters if their name was written in the book of life before time ever began. Those are God's elect. Now, this point might have been so obvious that it didn't need to be made here in this verse. Why repeat this again? Complete holiness. I mean, we've already talked about that in one sense. No death, no sorrow, no curse, no nothing. I think the point is reiterated in the inspiration of the Spirit as a warning to those who would hear this and those who would read it in the future, that the only way to enter this eternal city is by becoming a loyal follower of the Lamb in this life. Well, that concludes chapter 21. There's five verses in chapter 22 that actually continue the train of thought. Danny's going to teach on chapter 22, but I want to bleed into it just a little bit because there's There's really four more marks that flow out of this. And here we find the final part of the description of the holy city and its uniqueness. This final part focuses on conditions within the city, particularly as they pertain to the city's citizens. Number nine is spiritual enrichment. This whole existence will be marked by spiritual enrichment. John's angelic guide now shows him a river, not like our rivers. Totally unpolluted river, you could say. Now, just to remind you, back, the earliest description of paradise like this was the Garden of Eden, back in Genesis chapter 2. And we know that because of man's sin, he was banished from it in Genesis chapter 3. So what we find now is language that depicts God, again, returning to that kind of state in the new creation in the future. And the first item related to that return to paradise conditions is a comment on what will nourish and enrich the life of God's people in eternity. Verse 1 of chapter 22. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming down from the throne of God and of the Lamb, that shared throne. Isn't it interesting, the, the details? In the middle of the street. Now remember, no seas, no oceans in the eternal state. There, is, there will be no hydrologic cycle. That means there will be no rain to fill rivers and lakes. So this water of life here is not water as we know it. Instead, it's a symbol of eternal life, a continual everlasting symbol of eternal life and the quality of life that goes with eternal life due to being spiritually nourished for eternity. Listen to some of the ways this imagery is used in Scripture. Isaiah 12, verse 3. 
joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. In John 4, Jesus interacting with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, he tells her in verse 13, everyone who drinks of this water in the well is going to thirst again. It's just, it's earthly water, it's normal water, fallen water. Verse 14, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst, but the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. In John 7, verse 38, he believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So the point is, that's the way scripture uses this. In the New Jerusalem, there will be this river that is unlike any river we know, any river we have now. And like everything else in the New Jerusalem, this water is going to be clear as crystal. God's glory is going to be radiating even and transmitting through the water. We can't really visualize this adequately. I'll look for pictures of this one I couldn't find. But somehow it's going to cascade down from the throne of God in this luminous, dazzling, glistening, never-ending stream. And this pure, unpolluted flow will symbolize the constant state of everlasting life that we're going to enjoy and the idea, symbolizing the idea that we will be eternally nourished by the Lord. Now, that additional phrase in the middle of the street, it's better translated a little differently, in the middle of its path. It's connected in thought with the following phrase, of verse 2, on either side of the river was the tree of life. All that's actually connected. Let's talk about the tree of life for a moment. That's a familiar concept in Scripture. Tree of life is used in many passages to express spiritual blessing, spiritual prosperity. Proverbs 3, verse 18, wisdom is a tree of life to those who take hold of her. Proverbs eleven thirty: the fruit of the righteous is a tree of life. Proverbs 13, 12, hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. It's happiness and blessedness. Proverbs 15, 4, a soothing tongue is a tree of life. Interesting, back in Revelation 2, the letter to Ephesus. In the overcomer statement at the end of that letter, Revelation 2, it says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So on either side of the river was a tree of life. So in the New Jerusalem, this this tree symbolizes the blessings of eternal life, an eternity of spiritual blessing, spiritual nourishment, enrichment from the Lord, and that makes this tree of life the eternal counterpart to the tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden. See, that goes back to Genesis 2 verse 9. It says there, out of the ground, the Lord planted, or the Lord caused to grow, actually, the tree of life in the midst of the garden. And you know the command that man was given there, and man disobeyed God, so man was exiled away from that tree of life. Here's how it says it in Genesis 3.24, God drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim with a flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Man couldn't come back to it. But in the eternal state, we will be forever enjoying the nourishment that the tree of life represents, eternally enriched by it. Verse 2, 
On either side of the river was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So that language, 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit, emphasizes the infinite variety of of spiritual blessings that we are going to experience in eternity in heaven. That word month is just for our benefit. There's no time in heaven. It's an anthropomorphic expression to emphasize, in a way we can understand it, just the joyous provision of the Lord throughout eternity. And John makes the intriguing observation that the leaves, it says, can heal. Now, that's confusing at first glance because there's not going to be any illness, no death, no injury in heaven that requires healing. Well, the idea behind the term healing is not the presence of illness. The term healing here that's used refers to the idea of something that's health-giving or strength-giving. And the point is that life in heaven will be fully strong. Life in heaven will be fully energized, fully rich, fully fulfilling, fully exciting. What the text does not say is whether or not somehow we eat those leaves. It doesn't say. It's possible. I mean, back in Genesis 18, the angels ate food with Abraham and Sarah. Jesus ate food after his resurrection with the disciples, I don't know, it's conceivable that the saints in heaven will enjoy eating from this tree of life, but not out of need, not out of necessity, just strictly out of enjoyment. I love this idea of eating just out of enjoyment, never gaining weight in heaven, never, never dieting. Never need to. I mean, it hardly gets any better than that. Eating for enjoyment forever. doesn't say that. But all this enrichment and all this spiritual prosperity is because of this, which summarizes, verse 3, it's because of this. This summarizes the most dramatic change between the present earth and all of this that we're talking about. It just reminds us that there will no longer be any curse. When when you're having trouble comprehending all this, just keep going back to this thought. There's not going to be any more curse. I don't understand anything without curse on it. I don't understand eating for enjoyment without the ramifications of the curse going with that. I don't understand continual daylight all day, all the time in bright radiance. I don't understand how that's going to be so enjoyable I'm trying to filter it through life under the curse. There's not going to be any curse. Just keep telling yourself that. Verse number 10, 10th one out of 12. Here's the 10th mark. Joyful busyness. Now, see, there's another one we don't understand without a curse, busyness. Right now, busyness, we usually interpret that as part of the curse. You know, it's, it's the thing we have to deal with continually. We're also busy. Is there, is there a lot of joyfulness in the busyness? Not all the time, sometimes. But in this state, this joyful business, busyness, 
And it's connected to something that we noted earlier, that there's no temple in the New Jerusalem. Verse 3 says, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. God the Father, God the Son, the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, will reign throughout eternity, and his bondservants, all his people, will spend all of eternity carrying out Whatever he says, carrying out the variety, the infinite variety of tasks that the limitless mind of God can possibly conceive for his people. It'll be a busyness that's full of joy. It'll mark our existence there. So will number 11, divine intimacy. I think Danny's going to say more about this, but just an incredible credible thought. Verse 4, they will see his face. I mean, normally man can't see God's face. You know, Scripture says that. No man can see me and live. Exodus. But in eternity, we'll have all the perfect, we will all be perfectly holy and righteous. We'll be able to endure this. The glory of God radiating out, the glorious light of God, we'll be able to endure it without being consumed. That won't happen. We'll see his face. I couldn't help but think as I was typing this final part today, I couldn't help but think of a song I grew up with. Some of you older folks will remember it. I definitely remember my dad singing it. My dad didn't have a great voice. He could carry a tune, but he he was always singing and always whistling. And I learned that from my dad to whistle. It drives my wife absolutely crazy. That I love to whistle all the time. The song was entitled, It Will Be Worth It All. Do you guys remember that? Yeah, I see some nods. Some of the old people. It will be worth it all. Remember that? Here's, the, here's one verse. Oft times, often in other words, oft times the day seems long, our trials hard to bear. We're tempted to complain, to murmur and despair, but Christ will soon appear to catch his bride away, all tears forever over in God's eternal day. And the course goes, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will seem so small when we see Christ. One glimpse of his dear face, all sorrow will erase. So bravely run the race until we see Christ. And the last one, number 12. We'll enjoy this because it marks our existence there. It marks the city. Number 12, eternal security. It says in verse 4, We're going to be marked as God's personal possession, verse 4 says, and his name will be on their foreheads. There'll be no doubt to whom we belong to forever, marked as his. John just repeats then in some summary ways the earlier description of heaven's magnificent, verse 5, there'll no longer be any night. They'll not have need of the light of the lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord will illumine them. And he adds that final crescendo describing the saints' experience. It will never end, verse 5, and they will reign forever and ever. What thoughts? I mean, human language is inadequate to fully describe the unimaginable magnificence of the believer's eternal home. So no doubt there's more about heaven And there's more about the heavenly city and certainly more about the rest of the earth, the new earth, than what we have revealed to us. But what we have is what God wanted us to have. And it is enough to amaze us 
And it is enough to stir up our hope. So it only makes sense for us to think about heaven a lot. It only makes sense for God's people to long for heaven. Just one final thought I was pondering. It goes back to verse 3. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. That is a reminder of one of Christ's names, right? He'll be called Emmanuel. That means God with us. So in heaven, this is going to reach its optimum meaning, God with us. But it's also a reminder to something, reminder to us of something here. That it's only those who in Christ that go there. All of this we're talking about are those who know Emmanuel now, God dwelling with us. Those who have come in humility to say, I, it's left up to me, I make a, a wreck of my life, you know. But in Christ there's hope, there's forgiveness, there's purpose for living, and there's love and patience and acceptance, and he adopts me into his family. And, and to top it off, <laughs> there's this eternity, this eternal state waiting for me. In Christ, in the Emmanuel there is the eternal Emmanuel, God dwelling with us in heaven. Let's pray. Father, no way we can do justice even to the study of all this and the explanation of all of it, but I pray that the end result, as we look even toward the closing of the book down the road in the last chapter, summing up and really putting the exclamation point on the entire book, I pray that our hearts will be thrilled and encouraged to know that you win and nothing thwarts your will and that you are a God who loves to save sinners and that all who want to be saved are saved, will be saved. Lord, we know that and we believe that. We are the beneficiaries of that, undeserving of your mercy and grace but you're a saving God, so thank you for being that. Thank you for giving us hope and reason for living and something that's like a magnet to, to magnet to draw us up out of this fallen, cursed world that we're in. Help us to long for heaven, though, more. In our Savior's name, amen.